Good morning. All right, I'd like you all to, uh, to humor me for just a second. I want you to actually close your eyes, and I want you to imagine something for me. I want you to picture in your head what a holy person looks like. When I say think of a holy person, what comes into your mind? What is their facial expression? Uh, what is their posture? You know, what are they doing? Maybe you're imagining an old man in a brown robe with a, a stoic look on his face, maybe light shining down on him. Or maybe it's a, a woman uh, kneeling down in a posture of fervent prayer with her eyes closed. All right. How many of you thought of somebody feasting, drinking, laughing, and dancing? Anybody? We've got one. You, you can leave. I've got nothing to teach you today. Um, but for the rest of us, we've got some stuff to learn. I'd be willing to bet, right? Not much of us have that picture in our head when we see a holy person. Why is that? Why is it that we have such a hard time imagining a holy person smiling? Are holiness and joy really as opposed to each other as some of us tend to think? Not according to the Bible. There are nearly 3,000 passages in the Bible that use the word joy or a similar word. Words such as happiness, gladness, or merriment. 3,000. And as you read these passages, you begin to see a pattern emerge. Holiness and joy are not opposed to each other. According to the Bible, true joy is found in God's holy presence. That's our big idea for today. True joy is found in God's holy presence. God is holy and God is joyful. Holiness and joy are unified in him. They're inseparable. His joy is a holy joy, and his holiness is a joyful holiness. All true joy is holy, and all true holiness is joyful. And God wants to welcome us into his presence to experience his joy. But in order to come into his presence, we must be holy as he is holy. For God to be holy means that he is completely unique. He's not just alive. He is the source of all life. He's the creator. And he rejoices in all that he creates. He's not passive and disinterested. He's full of joy. His joyful presence creates and even sustains life. And it destroys death. This is why God's holy presence is actually dangerous to us. Humanity has rebelled against God, and we have chosen self-reliance over dependence on God as the source of life. All of us are born believing this lie of self-reliance. We rebel against the idea that God is the source of life, and we refuse to acknowledge him as our ultimate authority, our creator. But we do not have life within ourselves, so when we reject God as the source of life, we die. It brings death. Not only do we die at the end of our lives, but we are even contaminated by death throughout our lives. Death has defiled us. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we behave. 
And every time we act in a way that is contrary to God's holiness, we are further given over to this death. And if we are ever going to enter into God's presence, if we were to do it in this state, and if we were to enter into his presence in our state of rebellion against him and defiled by death, his holiness would destroy us. His life-giving presence destroys death, and we are defiled by death, so his presence would destroy us. Now, cut off from the fullness of his presence, we are also cut off from the fullness of his joy. If we are ever going to experience the fullness of God's joy, then we're going to need to come back into the fullness of his presence. But to do that, we need help. We need to be cleansed. We need to be saved. We need to be made holy. This week's Advent theme is joy. And for our text, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 12.3. For those of you who'd like, you can turn there in your Bibles. It's a short passage. I'll actually have it on the screen here behind me in a moment. Um, It's a short passage, but there's a lot of depth to it. So it's Isaiah 12.3. It says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Let's pray together and then we'll, we'll really get into our passage. Lord, be with us as we study your word this morning. Even now as we're gathered here together, may we find true joy in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. We're going to break this verse up into three parts and just pick it apart. So our first part here starts with joy. In Leviticus 23, we read about the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast has been nicknamed the time of our joy. And as we work through our verse this morning, we're going to allow this joyful celebration to illustrate our passage for us. And I think you'll be amazed at some of the connections between this verse and this uh, festival. So what is this festival? The Feast of Tabernacles is one of three major pilgrimage feasts that required all of the men of Israel to gather together before the Lord. And it's uh, this feast of all the feasts uh, commanded in the Bible that um, is most often associated with joy. Um, It was the last festival observed in the Israelite year, and it was the joyful climax of the year. Uh, In Jewish literature, this feast was often just called the feast. Enough said, no description needed. Uh, When you talk about the feast, they know what you're talking about. I mean, this is the big one. In reading about it, I've heard it described as Thanksgiving and Christmas all rolled into one over a week-long celebration. Uh, After reading more about it, I think that even this grand description falls short. The Feast of Tabernacles was a week-long festival, and it commemorated the Israelites' deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They remembered their 40 years living in the wilderness by making tabernacles, which were small shelters that they would live in for the duration of the celebration, kind of like camping. These tabernacles had coverings made from cut branches and leaves, which left open space so that they could see the stars at night, and believe it or not, even to let rain in. And similar to the way we decorate our Christmas trees this time of year, it was common for the Israelites to decorate their shelters with flowers, leaves, and fruit. And this was because the festival didn't only look back to the past, 
to God's salvation, it also celebrated his blessings and provision in the present. Similar to our Thanksgiving, this was a harvest festival, and it celebrated the completion of the agricultural year. And as such, they were to bring tithes from their harvest with them to the feast. And we read about these tithes in Deuteronomy uh, 14, and I'm going to read a little bit to you, and it might surprise you what these tithes uh, were like. It says, You shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, uh, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, then you shall turn it into money and spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household, and you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Not the way we often think of tithes, is it? The Israelites were commanded to bring an abundance of food, drink, and money to the festival, and they were commanded to enjoy it. They were not allowed to be stingy or to see it as wasteful. God wanted them to have a good time and to make sure that nobody was left out. He wanted them to obey his holy law, but with joy. We actually have a few biblical passages that narrate to us the accounts of this festival being celebrated. Uh, we get to see it in action. Uh, one time we see it is when um, Solomon dedicates the temple. And we see the glory of the Lord fill the temple. This was actually happening during the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's pretty incredible that God wanted his presence to be associated with this joyful celebration. We're told that people were just amazed when this presence came and then they rejoiced. They rejoiced in his presence. And another time we, we get to see this in action is in the story of um, Ezra and Nehemiah. And I'm going to read that to you. Uh, and I'm going to read it to you out of the Jesus Storybook Bible. I love this. I read it with my kids, and uh, it's actually taught me a lot about seeing Jesus through the whole Bible. So here, it's, it's story time for a little bit. Get ready. Have you ever been to a party that lasted a whole week? How about a sermon that went on all day? Don't worry, I won't be today. Well, that's what happened to God's people after they came home from being slaves. They had forgotten how God wanted them to live or who they were supposed to be. So Ezra and Nehemiah read them the rules God had given Moses. But something odd happened. The more the sermon went on, the sadder they all got. Why? Was the sermon that boring? No, not really. It was strange, you see. As Ezra read the book of rules, it worked like a mirror. It showed them what they were like, and they did not like what they saw. They saw that they had not been living the way that they should. They saw that they were cruel and selfish. Oh, we've blown it, they cried. Now God's going to punish us. They thought they knew what God was going to do, but they didn't. Of course, they might have picked up a clue from Ezra's name, which means help is here. And an even stronger one from Nehemiah's name, because his name means God wipes away our tears. And that, as you'll see, is just exactly what God was getting ready to do. Ezra looked at God's children. Great hot tears were welling up in their eyes and streaming down their cheeks. He stopped his sermon mid-sentence and shut the book. 
we're having a party, he shouted. And so that's just what they did all week long. God wants us to be happy, Ezra said. All day they listened to stories about the wonderful things God had done for his people. How he made the world. How he gave a special promise to Abraham. How he rescued them from slavery. How he spoke to Moses and showed them how to live. How he brought them to a special land. How he rescued them. No matter what, time after time, over and over again, because of his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. They remembered how God had always, all through the years, been loving his children, keeping his promise to Abraham, taking care of them, forgiving them, even when they disobeyed. Even when they ran away from him, even when they thought they didn't need him. Then God told his children something more. I can't stop loving you. You are my heart's treasure, but I lost you. Now, I'm coming back for you. I'm like the sun that gently shines on you, chasing away darkness and fear and death. You'll be so happy, you'll be like little calves running free in an open field. I'm going to send my messenger, the promised one, the one you have been waiting for, the rescuer. He's coming, so get ready. It had taken centuries for God's people to be ready, but now the time had almost come for the best part of God's plan. God himself was going to come, not to punish his people, but to rescue them. God was getting ready to wipe away every tear from every eye, and the true party was just about to begin. And so the congregation of Israel celebrated their first feast back in the promised land after they had returned from exile. They confessed their sins, they offered sacrifices, and then, and then they partied. After a full week of parting, the people departed from the square. We're told they gathered in the square before the water gate. So they departed from the square before the water gate with Nehemiah's charge to them still ringing in their ears. And he had told them, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then they left, and life in the promised land went on. We're going to take a look now at the, the second part of our verse. With joy you will draw water. You will draw water. Well, we just left off with the people departing from the square before the water gate, and that kind of begs the question, doesn't it? What is the water gate? What is this place? Well, I looked into it, and uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, in the Jewish oral tradition known as the Mishnah, we learn about something called the water libation ceremony. And this took place during the Feast of Tabernacles. And every night during the festival, a priest would exit through the water gate, and he'd follow a path um, down to the pool of Siloam. He would be accompanied by a procession of musicians as he drew water out of the pool to bring back to the temple for the next day's water libation, where the water, as well as wine, would be poured into a bowl that drained out onto the altar. The Levites during this time would be uh, playing music and singing, and the Mishnah states that he that has never seen the joy of the ceremony of the water drawing has never in his life seen joy. Pretty strong words. It was a big celebration. I mean, remember, everyone was gathered here, and it was a big party. In the temple area, young boys were climbing ladders to light golden candlesticks that stood nearly 75 feet high. 
It said that the light from these candlesticks illuminated every courtyard in Jerusalem. And in the light of these candlesticks, you would find respected men of faith uh, singing and dancing while carrying torches. In the, uh, and what do you think the rabbis were up to during all this commotion? You kind of imagine them in the temple library, like looking out the window, shaking their head at all the noise going on down there. Nope. No, we actually have accounts of... Um, rabbis joining in on the festivities, performing acrobats. One was famous for doing handstands on one hand. Um, they would be juggling things. Uh, I saw accounts of juggling flaming torches, swords, shofars, which are ram horn, horn trumpets, and even glasses of wine. I started to get the feel of what was going on here. I mean, this was a wild party. Don't forget about the feasting and drinking we talked about before. Massive party. And it was all for the glory of God. Don't get the idea here that what this is saying is that we're all free to go out. You know, I'm not saying we all need to be out doing keg stands on Friday nights. I'm just saying some of us could afford to loosen up a little bit. I mean, this is, this is worship. They're doing this in obedience to God. They're having a good time. It's great. But what's the point of the water libation ceremony? Why are they doing this? Remember that the festival took place at the end of the agricultural year. This was also the beginning of the wet season. Uh, Israel was dependent on rain to ensure uh, an abundant harvest the following year. Remember that the tabernacles they built for themselves actually let rain in. Um, They wanted it to rain. Rain was an important part of this festival. Uh, They were praying for rain. And it was out of this dependence on God and, this prayer, and these prayers to God for rain that this water libation ceremony grew. But over time, the water drawing and libation ceremonies eventually came to symbolize much more to the people of Israel than simply their dependence on God to send rain. In order to understand why, we have to take a little closer look at the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam was fed by the Gihon Spring. And it was actually with the water from this spring that the uh, kings of the house of David had been anointed. And this anointing was symbolic of the Holy Spirit coming upon somebody. And so because of the history, the, the waters of Siloam became associated with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. According to the prophets, this outpouring would take place when the Messiah came, the anointed one, through whom salvation would come to Israel. The prophet Zechariah said that on that day, living water would flow out from Jerusalem. The prophet Joel said that on that day, a fountain would flow out of the Lord's house. We see this drawn out in more detail by the prophet Ezekiel, who had a vision where he saw water coming out from the threshold of the temple. The water gradually becomes deeper and deeper until it becomes a river that flows out into the desert. And in the desert, trees begin to grow up in the banks of the river. The river eventually flows out to the Dead Sea, causing the Dead Sea to burst into life. Ezekiel saw that wherever the water from the temple flowed, life flourished. What Ezekiel was seeing in his vision was that instead of people purifying themselves in order to come into the temple... God's holiness was flowing out of the temple and purifying everything it touched. 
This is what the water libation ceremony looked forward to, the day when the Holy Spirit would pour out of the temple, and like Habakkuk prophesied, the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And of course, we're now familiar with Isaiah's prophecy, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And the people of Israel would actually sing these words um, during the water libation ceremony. So... um, They would sing, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation as the priest was drawing out water from the pool of Siloam. And because of the pool's messianic associations, it actually became known as the well of salvation. They would actually call the pool of Siloam the well of salvation. So it was from the well of salvation that the priest would draw water to pour out as an offering before God. And as he poured out the water, the people would cry out, Hoshana, Hoshana, which means please save us, please save us. The water libation ceremony eventually became a point of contention between the two dominant sects of Judaism, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if you know anything about these guys, it seems like they didn't agree on a whole lot. Uh, The Pharisees approved of the ceremony, while the Sadducees, they did not. And so around the year 95 BC, we see the ceremony um, turn violent. At that time, a man named Alexander Janai was both the king of Israel and the high priest. Janai was a follower of the Sadducees, and so when the time came to offer the water libation, he publicly refused to pour the water on the altar. The people were so upset by this that they pelted him with fruit. True story. And it's kind of a comical scene until it ends in tragedy because Alexander Janai retaliated by having around 6,000 of his fellow Jews massacred. At the, during the time of our joy their rejoicing turned to weeping. And this was just another harsh reminder that although they were back in the promised land, they were still in bondage. They were still waiting for the Messiah. They were still waiting for salvation. And for that, we're going to look at our our third part of our verse. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. From the wells of salvation. Many biblical scholars and uh, commentators alike believe that Jesus was actually born around this time, during the Feast of Tabernacles. They work this out by piecing together dates uh, we do know from the Bible. We don't know that for sure, though. So we can't say with absolute surety. But what we do know is that when Jesus grew up, he went to this feast. And when he did, he made quite an appearance. We read about it in John chapter 7, and here Jesus' brothers are getting ready to go to the feast. His brothers are accusing Jesus of hiding out in Galilee. Uh, They tell him that he should go to the feast with them, go down to Jerusalem, and show off for his disciples at the festival. Everyone's looking for him. He should go and show off. Uh, Jesus told his brothers that he wasn't going to go with them, and, uh, and so after they're done making fun of him, they leave without him. So let's take a minute and let's travel with Jesus' brothers who didn't believe in him and try to piece together some of what they experienced as they entered into Jerusalem. So when Jesus' brothers arrived in Jerusalem, they would have built their tabernacles and settled in. The first day of the feast was a Sabbath day. It was a day for all the pilgrims to get some much-needed rest. But after that, the festivities would really begin. Every morning, Jesus' brothers would see sacrifices being made to purify them from their sins. 
And every morning they would see two great processions of priests enter into the temple. One would enter in from the east gate and another would enter in from the water gate. And they would converge into a great assembly at the altar. A blast from a shofar would uh, signal the arrival of each of the processions at their respective gates. And then a man would stand up and lead the procession in playing a flute. In Hebrew, this flute was called the pierced one. And so the pierced one would lead this great procession into the temple, into God's presence. The priests that entered in from the east gate were returning from dumping the ashes from the previous day's sacrifices. And they would be carrying these willow branches that were 25 to 30 feet in length. And they would wave these great branches. And the sound uh, of the wind and the leaves would sound like the spirit of God entering the temple. These priests would enter in and circle the altar seven times, and they would stand these giant branches up around the altar, making what looked like a wedding canopy. The priests entering in from the water gate would be returning from the water libation ceremony that we talked about, uh, the water drawing. And they would come in, and among them would be the high priest, who would be carrying the golden vase full of the Mayam Hayam, the living water, which he had drawn from the well of salvation. He would pour this water out into the bowl that drained onto the altar as his assistant simultaneously poured out blood-red wine from a silver vase. And they would pour the water and the blood-red wine onto the altar. While all this was happening, Jesus' brothers would have joined with the crowd in crying out, Hoshana, Hoshana, please save us, please save us. And Jesus' brothers likely would have even joined in in singing Uh, these words. And if so, they might have even thought of their brother for a moment because Jesus' name means salvation. And so in a sense, what they would have actually been singing is with joy you will draw water from the wells of Jesus. And if they were thinking about Jesus at this point, we know that they weren't the only ones. As we continue in John chapter 7, we see the festival is buzzing with talk about Jesus. Everybody's looking for him. I'm going to read some passages to you from John 7. The Jewish leaders tried to find him at the festival and kept asking if anyone had seen him. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds. Some argued, he's a good man, but others said, no, he's nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public, for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. We see Jesus show up midway through the festival, and he starts teaching in the temple. And as he begins to teach tensions start to rise, and you can feel this as you're reading this chapter. Some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Isn't this him? But here he is, speaking in public, and they say nothing to him. Could our leaders possibly believe that he is the Messiah? Then the leaders tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Many among the crowds at the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? When the Pharisees heard that the crowds were whispering such things, they and the leading priests sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. Tensions just keep rising as the festival progresses. The temple was heavy with anticipation. Everyone was waiting to see what would happen. Day after day, they kept shouting out, Hoshana, Hoshana, please save us, please save us. All the while wondering if their Messiah was actually there in their midst, if he was there. The tensions reached their climax on the last day of the festival. 
on that day, all of the ceremonies that we talked about are repeated seven times, which means that the people are just being bombarded all day long with messianic imagery, all the while talking among themselves, asking the big question, could it be him? Could it really be him? The last day of the feast was called Hoshana Rabbah. Again, Hoshana means please save us, and Rabbah means great. So what this day refers to is the great salvation, the day of the great salvation. And it's on this last day of the feast, the day of great salvation, when the water libation is being poured out over and over and over again. When we see Jesus stand up and he cries out in a loud voice over the party for all to hear, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And what Jesus was saying was not lost on the crowd. They didn't miss it. When the crowds heard him say this, it says, some of them declared, surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. And others said, no, he's not just the prophet. He's the Messiah. Sometime later, the religious leaders got their wish, though. Jesus was eventually arrested, and he was sentenced to death. And likely, many of the same people who were there at this festival crying out, please save us, please save us, were the same ones crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And he was crucified. These verses from Psalm 22 that I'm going to read prophetically express the agony that Jesus experienced as he suffered on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They have pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And here's one more. I am poured out like water. I am poured out like water. After Jesus had died, while he still hung on the cross, his side was pierced. And blood and water poured out of his side. Water from the well of salvation. We're told that as Jesus died on the cross, he cried out in a loud voice and he released his spirit. And when he released his spirit, the curtain in the temple, the place of God's holy presence, was torn from top to bottom. The prophets had told of a day when living water would flow out from the temple and bring life to the desert. And that day had finally come. That day had finally come. Jesus released his spirit and the Holy Spirit poured out of the temple. Bringing life and healing to a dead and dying world. After Jesus' death, his disciples remembered how he had shouted out at the festival, right? Uh, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. It's in hindsight that Jesus' disciples realized that when he had said living water, he was talking about the Holy Spirit who would be given to everyone who believed in Jesus. And with this new understanding of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' disciples reflected on their time with him. They remembered how when people defiled by death, disease, and even unclean spirits, when they came, 
to Jesus and had been touched by him, the dead came to life, the sick were healed, and unclean spirits departed. Why did Jesus have such power? Why wasn't he defiled by contact with death like everyone else? It's because the spirit living in him was the Holy Spirit of the living God, and death has no power over the Holy Spirit. Remember, God's holiness destroys death. Jesus came to live a perfectly holy life, the life that we in our defiled state never could have lived. He then suffered the death that our rebellion against God had earned. But because Jesus was the physical embodiment of the holy God, who had come to tabernacle among us, the God who is himself the source of all life, death had no power over him. So three days after Jesus was placed in the tomb, the stone was rolled away and he walked back out. Jesus conquered death. He conquered our death. And because Jesus took our death upon himself, he could conquer our death without destroying us in the process. Now set free from the power of death, he fills us with the Holy Spirit of the living God. We as believers in Jesus become the new temple, the new dwelling place of God's presence. Now it's out of us that this river of life flows out into the deserts of the world, bringing life in its wake bringing joy. God gives us his holiness. The very life force of God lives in us and flows out of us. Though like Jesus we may die, death will not have the final word. There will be life for us after the grave. Now with our death already died and our holiness restored, we are finally ready to enter back in to God's holy presence to experience the fullness of his joy. The Bible tells us that it was out of the fullness of this joy that God created the world. It was for the restoration of this joy, the joy set before him, that Jesus was able to endure the agony of the cross. This joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in us that allows us to endure trials in this life. And it is into this joy that we will enter fully on that day. When Jesus looks us in the eyes and with a big smile on his face says to us, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your master. Enter in. And those of us who have bowed our lives to Jesus, the king of heaven and earth, we will enter in. We will enter into a world reborn, set free from the tyranny of death. I want to read to you from Revelation 22. This is the last chapter of the Bible. This is how the Bible closes. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, 
and they will reign forever and ever. Then the angel said to me, everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and true. The Lord God who inspires his prophets has sent his angel to tell his servants what will happen soon. Jesus actually speaks a few times through this last chapter. We see him here when he says, look, I am coming soon. Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. Again, he says, look, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty Come, let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. Drink freely from the water of life. Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's holy people. And like that, the Bible closes. Terranova Church, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you reject the lie that you are self-reliant, able to sustain your life on your own? Will you bow down before your creator? And it's hard, but it's true. You need to acknowledge that you are defiled by your sin and by death. You have rebelled, unworthy to come before him. And then will you accept the salvation that God has won for you by dying your death on the cross? Will you open yourself up to be filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God? Will you accept the holiness that he gives you? Will you enter into his joy? Are you thirsty? If so, will you come and with joy draw water from the well of salvation? Let's pray. Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, we confess that we are unworthy to enter into your presence. So thank you for accepting Jesus' sacrifice in our place. Thank you for sending your spirit to fill us, making us holy. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us Fill us with your presence. Fill us with your joy. Fill us to overflowing and send us out like a river into the desert that we may see the wasteland burst into life everlasting. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.